This is exactly right. There's a song from the mid-90s that I keep coming back to. It's called Everything Falls Apart from a band called Dog's Eye View. Everything falls apart Then I get to try to it's about being young and frustrated and a little bit self-destructive, which I for sure was at the time. It came out in 1995, right when Sudden Impact's relationship with Michael Bivens was falling apart. And its lyrics, whether or not the writer knew it at the time, are ripped from real life. Dog's Eye View was a band started by a guy named Peter Stewart. Peter had always wanted to be a rock star, to have a song on the radio, to have a video in rotation on MTV. He'd seen that Bon Jovi video, Wanted Dead or Alive, where they're touring the world in private planes and playing to stadiums, and he said, that's for me. That will make me a whole person. And as Everything Falls Apart began to take off, that wish looked like it was just about to come true. He remembers a moment in Paris during a European tour when he heard what he had always dreamed of hearing. So we're playing four nights there, and maybe night two, you know, this is pre-international cell phone. Maybe night two, I go down and there's a pay phone downstairs uh, and I'm told that my manager wants to talk to me. Dog's Eye View had toured with Counting Crows the year Counting Crows blew up. Adam Duritz even wore a Dog's Eye View t-shirt on the cover of Rolling Stone. But what Peter wanted for himself, to have a video on the air on MTV, had remained just out of reach. And uh, so, you know, do, 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 call him up long distance. And he says, I have great news. MTV added you. You're in the buzz bin. They're playing it six time, 16 times a week. I remember this clear as day, right? The video for Everything Falls Apart didn't just get added to MTV's rotation. It got added to the buzz bin, a thing MTV did from 1987 until it stopped playing music videos. The buzz bin was a seal of approval from the network like a verified blue check mark that said, this is an artist to keep your eye on. Other buzzbin artists from around this time were Dave Matthews Band, Stone Temple Pilots, Counting Crows themselves. Dog's Eye View had arrived. Peter Stewart had gotten exactly what he wanted, a video on MTV 16 times a week. Guess what happened next? And I said, wow, why not 20? Of course. Of course. Right? Yeah. Was it. That was yeah. like, there was no moment of jubilation. There was no, there wasn't a, like, there was no arrival. It was fucking devastating. I, cause it was like, I need more. Like yeah. that's not, that's not enough. I'm going to talk to Peter Stewart about the dog's eye view experience. What was good, what fell apart and where he is now. And I will continue on my quest to track down all of sudden impact, a group for whom everything fell apart before it even had a chance to come together. This is Waiting for Impact, a Dave Holmes passion project. So here is where we stand. 
I have spoken with Aaron Kane, the lead singer of Sudden Impact, who started as Too Special and later became White Guys, and then even later became The Outsiders, and then also became Outsiders for Life. He has given me his part of the Sudden Impact story, that it all started with a poster that they showed to Michael Bivins, who signed them to Capitol Records and put them in Boys to Men's Motown Philly video before he even heard them sing. I've spoken to Tim Bird, the group's producer, and some say the sixth member of Sudden Impact. He confirms all of the above, which is wild. And he's told me more of the story, how the group left Capitol to go to Bivens' Biv 10 Records, who then dropped them, and how they then got signed to Boys to Men's label Stone Creek, which then folded entirely. Aaron and his brother Noel left the group after that, and two new members joined. I've tracked one of them down, and I'm going to see if he'll speak to me about the whole thing. I also have an email into Sudden Impact's main songwriter, Todd White. No answer yet. But while we wait, let's get into Peter Stewart. I loved Dog's Eye View. In the mid-90s, when I was feeling very alone and very confused, having his voice in my ears honestly kept me going. He was alone and confused, too. And if he had found his place in the world, that meant I could, too. Peter had dreams of stardom. He had plans. He had persistence. But I think what I really connected to about him, what really inspired me, was his ambition. I'm in awe of people who just decide what they want from life, no matter how unrealistic or improbable, and don't let anything stop them from getting it. I think it's why I'm attracted to the sudden impact story, honestly. If I were those guys, I would have thrown in the towel three names ago. They kept pushing, and I admire that. So did Peter. Peter got into music with a head full of steam, but it was what was on his head that might have made the difference. This is where my entire life turns on Jewish hair. Later in this episode, you will learn how the sensible Long Island buzz cut of Peter Stewart met the infamous San Francisco hair extravaganza of Counting Crows' Adam Duritz and changed his life forever. But before that chance meeting with a famous quaff, Peter was figuring himself out. He was just out of Northwestern University, playing music, living in a basement apartment in Chicago. That basement apartment, by the way, with its high windows, through which Peter had a view of people's feet as they walked past, would eventually provide the name he would go on to record under, Dog's Eye View. But at the time, he had not yet settled on a good name for the folky acoustic sound he was developing. I think we were either called uh, the Gravity Beavers at that point, Uh or Monster. Both terrible names for what we were doing. Monster's a bad name in in that I think people think you're going to show up and be heavy. Oh, sure. And then you you show up with an acoustic guitar and, and, uh, you know, it's sort of, you you look even less cool. But yeah, so I was playing in bands and doing a lot of, uh, I don't know if you ever did this, uh, a lot of putting like a mix of, I think it was flour and water together and hanging posters on light poles. Oh no. Uh, to, you know, for your band, like it's, you know, pre-internet, pre all that stuff. You'd literally go with a bucket of this goop and hundreds of pieces of paper and go around to all the light poles in the neighborhoods in Chicago and and put up these posters for, for your band. And in winter in Chicago, that's a really cold option. That's a really cold thing to do. But you needed that kind of gumption if you were going to make it in the early 90s. And as we know from Sudden Impact, if the right person sees the right poster, the sky's the limit. After a couple years on his grind in Chicago, he determined that he was ready for the big time. He packed up and moved to New York with a pretty sweet opportunity right off the bat. 
I'd been talking to this woman at a record company called Imago for months. And she was, you know, yeah, come to New York, I'll get you a gig, come to New York, I'll get you a gig. And she kept saying, you know, every every Tuesday, I think it was, I don't know if it was Monday or Tuesday, every X day of the week, there's this guy named Jeff Buckley. He plays at this place called Shanae. I'll get you a gig play before him, you'll see, you know, you'll play to tons of people. He's the thing in New York right now, right? I've never heard Jeff Buckley at this point. Great. So I literally moved to New York and she gets me this gig at Shanae and I am, this is it, right? This is one of many, this is it moments that were not it. But I get there and my first night there, I go down to Shanae, this is my big gig. And it's literally Shane who ran Shanae and, and like someone making coffee and a person. Because for the first week ever, Jeff's run has ended. Jeff had finished, he'd finished a big finale the week before he was done with Shanae and he's moved on to greener pastures and, and off to make grace. So my first big gig was literally like thud. That is Last Goodbye from the classic album Grace that Jeff Buckley had just left Shanae to make. And that voice is why Jeff Buckley influenced a whole generation of singer-songwriters, including Peter Stewart. We'll come back to Jeff Buckley a bit later in the show. But for now, like me in New York in the mid-90s, Peter is temping to pay the bills. He's getting some stage time where he can. And what happens next is a real ride. A friend of mine called me and asked me, to open for a band, an, an Irish band called The Fat Lady Sings. And so I went down, I can't even remember where, it was some tiny club, and I went down to open for them. And um, it was fine. And they were cool, but they were they were taking five to 10 minutes between every song to tune their guitars and like get their shit together. And they were playing the next night, opening for, of all people, Howard Jones. Um, at, at like the beacon or somewhere. And I was like, you guys need some, you need a roadie. You need someone to, to hand you guitars and tune guitars. And they're like, oh, that'd be great. That'd be, can you do that? I was like, yeah, absolutely. So I went up and did that uh, for them. And at the end of that show, they were, they, they were like, look, we're going off on this two month tour of the States. We could use a roadie. You can open gigs for us if you do it. How about it? I'm like, yes, absolutely. The band and the sound guy and Peter tour the States. Seven people, four of them chain smokers, one van. The tour is not boring. They were sleeping on people's floors in yeah. Boston. They were sleeping on floors of some people who were running guns for the IRA. So there was a lot of weaponry around. Terrific. Um, we came back to New York where they played Café Wa as an Irish band opening for a funk band on Funk Night, oh, which boy. was not great. Um <laughs> Uh, the singer broke his arm skiing in the middle of the tour after uh -huh. we'd had to send the road, the uh, sound guy home because he had a mental break, okay. um, full psychotic episode. Uh, then the singer broke his arm and I had to play guitar for them. Uh, it was a very exciting tour. But through all of it, Peter is listening to a cassette of a record that hasn't been released yet. I had had an advanced copy of the first Counting Crows record. August and everything after someone, a friend of mine who worked at Geffen had given me a cassette um, and I was obsessed with it. I loved it. And it was before it had come out. And I was just, it killed me. Right. It was right in my vein of what I like to do and what I like to hear and 
So in the middle of this Fat Lady Sings tour, they were playing, uh, they were the, the second opening act for Counting Crows in, at St. Andrew, Andrews Hall in Detroit. Um, and it was Counting Crows' first ever headlining gig outside of California. Peter is a big Counting Crows fan at this point. He's dying to share a bill with them. So like Todd and Alan of Sudden Impact with a dream in their hearts and a poster in their hands, he takes a chance. I said, look, I know there are two other opening acts. I need to play on this gig. I love this fucking band. Let me play on this gig. And someone relented and said, you can play literally at seven o'clock when the doors open. Doors open, you play 15 minutes. I said, great, I'm on the gig. 15 minutes of stage time at 7 p.m. before anyone's even left their homes to come to the venue, while the bartender is still cutting up limes. But it's enough to give him a little swagger when he has that important interaction that hinges on Jewish hair. So before the show, we're uh, up in the dressing rooms. It's just sort of one communal dressing room. And County Crows are not known at this point. Uh, there's been no radio play. There's nothing. They're just building up. And I see Adam um, from across the room. And I, I walked up to him and uh, I said, hey, how are you doing? I'm, I'm the opening act, right? Which is way better than saying, like, I'm a big fan. So I said, hey, I'm the opening act. My name's Peter. He's like, oh, hey, great, great. Nice to meet you. I was like, listen, I've always wanted dreadlocks. How long did it take you to grow those? He was like, about like three hours, man. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, it's a weave. It's, it's, I was like, all my life I could have had dreadlocks if I just like spent money. Peter and Adam Duritz get friendly. They exchange phone numbers. And because this is a time in history when you would talk on the phone, they do. And a few weeks later, they were coming to, or maybe a month later, I'm not sure how long, they were coming to New York to play a gig at Wetlands the night before they played Saturday Night Live. And somehow I, I, I was, you know, I was pushy and doing a lot of finagling. So I basically said, hey, I have a band. Can we open for you at Wetlands? He's like, yeah, sure, open for us at Wetlands. That'd be great. And I think what, it may have even been worse than that. I think there was someone opening for them and then they played and then we closed for them at Wetlands, right? So after everybody left, we started playing. But again, it was one of those things like, I just want to be in the game. A few days later, Peter's phone rings. And again, because this is a time when people talk on their phones, Peter picks up. Adam called me or his manager called, someone did and said, look, we had an opening act for two weeks. Uh, you know, we're going off on a Northeast tour. We had an opening act. He just dropped out. Um, can you do two weeks of touring with us solo? I was like, yeah, yes, I can. Yeah, absolutely I can. So I was along for this ride where County Crows were this cool band and they were, I loved their record and they were playing the Wetlands, which was a little club and we played. And, um, and I was going to go off on tour with them the next, you know, the day after Saturday Night Live. And they played Saturday Night Live and it just went, it just changed, right? It immediately, you know, I was on tour with them and it went from like playing the wetlands to playing a bigger place to the, the small place you're still booked in is, is packed. And everyone, like all of a sudden you could feel this thing rolling it's very rare that a band has like a meteoric rise like the Crows had. And I rode that, I rode that whole thing. You know, it was like they were on the cover of Rolling Stone, they're on the cover of Spin, they're on, you know, mm -hmm. all these things. They're doing like these TV shows. And I got to be along for all of it, right? And just and, like, yeah. yeah. And, and they're not just on the cover of Rolling Stone. 
Adam Duritz is on the cover of Rolling Stone in a dog's eye view T-shirt. Yes, which again goes to how annoyingly uh, in it for myself I was. I mean, I was just constantly pushing, like, which I, I think you have to do to some degree. But it's like I'm Absolutely. the guy going, "Oh, well, what you need is for me to come on the road and roadie for you and open for you, right?" And and. Uh-huh. Adam's about to go do the, you know, his first ever like magazine cover shoot. And I'm like, so, so you're going to wear my shirt, right? Can you please wear my shirt? (laughs) Well, listen, it worked. It did, but it's, it's, you know. um, Okay, sure. Yeah. It's a little cringy in retrospect, but as we've learned by now, even the least probable, even the wildest kind of ambition can pay off. Peter Stewart has found himself in the right place at the right time, and that's because he's made the decision to be everywhere. Roadying for bands and playing for empty rooms brought him luck, but it was luck that he manifested through bold action. And this brings me back to an aspect of my own personal story that still kind of scares me a little bit. In 1998, I made the decision to show up at 1515 Broadway to audition to be a VJ on MTV. This is a decision that has fundamentally changed the entire course of my life, to the point that I honestly don't know where or who I would be if I hadn't gone. It gave me the life I have now. And the thing that haunts me about it, the thing that I think about at 3 a.m. when I can't get back to sleep, is how close I came to not going. Here's the deal. The first day of those auditions at MTV was the day after Easter. I had spent Easter with my group of friends in New York City. We'd cooked bacon and eggs and taken the Staten Island Ferry back and forth because we couldn't afford brunch in the Circle Line. I didn't tell any of them what I was planning on doing. It felt so foolish, like a thing a child would do. I figured there would be a lot of big characters showing up for this thing, so a guy like me, kind of a low-key, everyman music nerd, would have to be seen early, before the casting people got tired of faces and voices. So I set an alarm for 4 a.m. And when that alarm clock screamed at me that morning, those tall red digital letters spelling out 4-0-0, my eyes burning and my body horizontal and cozy, I said, what am I doing? I'm 27. I have a job. It's time for me to put aside childish things like showing up and trying to be a VJ for a network whose demographic I aged out of a month ago. Who does this? How foolish. Go back to sleep and then go to work like a man. I turned off the alarm. I blinked. A heavy, sleepy blink. And then another longer one. A third blink and I would have gone back to sleep. My eyes would have just stayed closed until it was time to go to my regular job. And I would have gone about the business of a regular day. I would have missed my chance. I don't know what it is that got me out of bed. I know I didn't want to get out of bed. But I did. And I showered and I put on a black tunicky kind of shirt that I guess I thought was trendy, and I took a taxi to Times Square where I was 168th in line. We got brought into the studio in groups of 12, and when my group was called in, I was at audition station seven, where the casting guy saw something in me and sent me to another room where I talked to more casting people for a half hour or so. And then they told me they'd call by Tuesday at midnight if I made the top 10, and they called at 11.57 p.m. on Tuesday. And I borrowed a good going out shirt from one of my roommates and I showed up the next morning. And then I made the top five and they gave me access to the wardrobe room where I got to wear some of Matt Pinfield's bowling shirts for the rest of the process because we were the same size. I got to practice awards show podium banter on live TV with Pauly Shore. I think I made a biodome joke. Kathy Griffin did a challenge where she was a different kind of difficult interview for each of us. We had to run across the street to the Virgin Megastore and grab our three favorite albums and defend them. Mine were the first Ben Folds 5 record, De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising, and Tommy Keene's songs from the film. Perfect. 
Now, it was obvious, seeing Jesse Camp, this tall, beautiful, 18-year-old weirdo, that he was going to win. He was a character. And that took the pressure off of me. I relaxed. I enjoyed myself. I bantered with Kurt Loder. I sassed him back when he said he hated Paul McCartney and Wings. How can you hate Paul McCartney and Wings? And the voters voted, and I lost. And I said, Dave, have your emotions about this later. Now it's time to put a smile on your face and go to the after party and start trying to get in some other way. And I did, and I pushed, and now I'm here. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be doing this right now, being in this room, talking into this microphone, if I had blinked that third time. So I guess the moral here is say yes. Get up early for that stupid audition. Print up your poster, even if there's nothing for that poster to promote. Ask a famous friend to wear your t-shirt. Make a t-shirt. Take a chance. Success often really does come down to being in the right place at the right time. And there will never be a right time for your right place to be bed. So, Peter Stewart and Dog's Eye View are on tour with Counting Crows, the band that is becoming the biggest band in America. And the buzz is growing for Dog's Eye View as well. What were you hoping? Was it fame that excited you? Was it connection with an audience that excited you? What, what about your music? Like, what, what was the impact you were hoping to make? Well, it's, it's complicated, right? And I've had a lot of time to think about it. So I'm not sure. At the time... It was a combination of a couple things, right? So in it, in the roots of it, it started with a combination of, like, I was an incredibly depressed, very lonely teenage boy, right? Um, and I picked up the guitar and the first thing that happened to me musically in a lot of ways was, uh, you know, my dad had died when I was really young. I had all this stuff around it. I picked up a guitar and then someone turned me on to Cat Stevens and the song Father and Son. And it was the first time I ever felt like heard and understood and, and, and music immediately became this thing where I felt less alone in the world. Right. And I, I felt like I got it and it moved me so deeply. Um, so part of it was wanting to participate in that, right. Wanting to be moved by music and wanting to move people and wanting to, you know, explore that. And part of it was, you know, sort of self, therapy, right? Write sad songs about sad things I'm feeling. And I feel like less sad. And, and if anyone, if it communicates with anyone, great. That's mixed almost 50, 50 with being around at the inception of MTV. Right. Um, and, and I, I wish that this was uh, less the case, right. For coolness. But part of it was, the wanted dead or alive music video by Bon Jovi, right? I was, you know, sitting in my room. I'm, you know, uh, I'm in high school or junior high or high school. And there are all these shots of like, you know, like guys getting into like limos and guys getting into planes and guys getting girls. And, you know, I've seen a million faces and I've rocked them all. It's like, fuck, yeah, fuck, yes, that's what I want, right? So so it's this weird combination of those two things. Um, and, and on the darker side, which comes out, you know, sort of proves itself later, you know, so much of it was the chase. Like, I just want to get a record out. I just want people to hear me. I just want that thing. But there was some 
internal thing where I thought that that would fix me, right? I thought that would make everything okay. And I, I really, you know, I, I couldn't have articulated that to you at that point, but there was this element of like, well, surely John Bon Jovi stepping onto that plane, um, you know, or, or in his leather pants or, or, you know, seeing a million faces and I rocked them all on that stage has no problems, right? Totally life is, you know, heaven opens up and you feel amazing all the time. So, so part of it was that, right? I really thought that, that if I had a record out and or a hit single, all problems solved. I would immediately become someone who is comfortable in their own skin and happy. Dog's Eye View gets to play in bigger and bigger venues. Peter sees, okay, maybe not a million faces, but certainly into the thousands of faces, and he rocks most of them softly. But most importantly, he's selling his homemade cassettes at his merch table, and people are buying. He attracts the attention of Columbia Records, who fly him to New York to meet the bigwigs. I literally, the next week, went to Columbia Records, and it was sort of like all the dreams you would have of, like, you know, Dylan or, you know, uh, whoever. I went into a conference room at Columbia Records with Donnie Einer, the president of the label, and my manager at the time, Marty Diamond, and and this guy, Mitchell Cohen. And uh, it was like, okay, play a few songs in the least acoustically friendly environment oh, you've ever God. been in, right? It's a fucking yeah. conference room that's deadened. And it's like, you play a guitar and it goes, yeah. Um, yeah, and totally antiseptic and clean and fluorescent. Oh, and just, just nothing. Uh, but, you know, I, I remember playing a song and, and just sort of st- like walking up a chair onto the table and playing it above them. Uh, and I remember going, oh, this is, you know, I like this kid. I like this. And, you know, a couple days later, it was, they're going to offer you a deal. The band records the album Happy Nowhere, which contains the single Everything Falls Apart, and honestly, about a half a dozen more bangers. But for a long time, Happy Nowhere sits on a shelf, waiting to be released, and waiting some more. As we know by now, that happens a lot. Sometimes those albums never stop waiting. This feels like something Pixar should explore. And then a very strange gig changes everything. The record was either going to come out in 95 or 96, right? Late late 95 or 96. And it was unclear what, what was going to happen. And it wasn't necessarily, you know, no one necessarily heard a big hit on it. And it wasn't necessarily a priority at Columbia. And I had a very weird gig come up, which was I got asked, and this is before we were signed. Yeah, I mean, before we were the records out, there's no way people really knew about us, right? So... Someone reached out to me and said that Michael Eisner, the head of Disney at the time, his son is graduating from college and really wants you to play at his graduation. First of all, I know that they wanted Soul Coughing to play or they wanted Cracker to play or they wanted someone to play and that their dads had gone down the list to who's an artist who we can get to play, right? There, there's no way. First of all, we weren't like a party band. And second of all, come on. It was a great foreshadowing of my entire career in music because they picked us up in New York City in a limo and took us to a private plane and flew us up to Cornell or wherever it was and picked us up in a Bentley and took us to the gig. It's a dual graduation party. Michael Eisner's son and the son of Mickey Shuloff, who at the time was the president of Sony, which owned Columbia Records. It is a very weird and suddenly a very important gig. 
And then we set up and play. And it's among the worst gigs you can play, right? It is both of those families in a restaurant, an Italian restaurant, both of those extended families and grandparents and uncles and aunts and some teenagers, uh, you know, and, and, and the kids graduating from college. And the first thing that happens is we step on stage and it's just fucking squealing feedback. And you just watch a bunch of old people eating, just grimace. Um, and then we play some folk songs for these kids on their college graduation because their parents got us there. And then the very drunk son of, of what, the Eisner kid, right? The very drunk kid, his dad pulls me aside and says, my kid wants to jam with you guys, right? And I was like, we don't, I don't know. I'm not that kind of guy. I don't have songs to jam on. I don't, yeah. and we don't have another guitar. So it wouldn't be appropriate, right? So I turned <laughs> that down. And then they ask us to play a second set and we do. And some kids are like, you know, parents are like, oh, dance, dance. And we're like, play the most upbeat, sad folk song you can play. Thanks probably to an open bar, the gig is a success. And Michael Eisner intervenes on Peter's behalf. And Michael Eisner goes, so when is your record coming out? And I said, "Uh, you know, I don't know. It might be, uh, it might be October. It might be next year. We're not sure. And he goes, no, it's coming out in October. Mickey, October. And literally, like, they get into this weird power play about when Sony's going to put out the record. And the next day it got slated for for October. So the single came out in, like, November of 95 and and immediately, you know, immediately started getting traction and being being a thing. You know what happens next. The video gets added to MTV's buzz bin. It gets played 16 times a week. And the thing that Peter thought would fix him doesn't. That is very much in keeping with the character of the lyrics, you know, which I think at the time, like listening to it. Um, so if that, if the album came out in 95, I would have been 24 and I was in New York and, and, you know, sad and lonely and self-destructive and self-hating and all those things. So the, the record really spoke to me on a deep level in a, in a, in a, in a sense that made me feel like, oh, I know this guy. I know this guy. Right. And so to hear you say that, it's like, yeah, I know that guy would react that way. That record continued to grow and continued to be a hit single. But there was a, a there was definitely, you know, part of the reason I mentioned that the ascendancy of the Crows, right? And that thing is that that just never happened for us, right? I mean, we, by, by, by all accounts, right? as successful, like more successful than you could really hope to be, right? You you play a lot of shows, you get a record deal, you have a hit single, like that's, that's dreams, right? 13 year old me is like, yes, right? Um, but there was a weird thing when it didn't progress to the next level, right? It didn't, you know, we went on Letterman and the next day was a, a day. And there was this sort of slow realization that it was just, it had gone really well and gone up and was blowing up and things are great and it's a hit record and now go do another one. And how, are like, are you psychologically, do you have the self-knowledge to know that this is not, this is not feeding you the way that it, you were hoping that it would? There was a lot of me trying to push it. I'd done so much to push it uphill, right? Of, of like, let me be a roadie. Let me wear my shirt. Let me do this, you know, push, push, push. And at a certain point, you can't, 
individually push the machinery anymore, right? So it got to a point where, you know, I would just, I mean, I had to, you know, really make amends to my manager years later because I realized, like, I would just call him 20 times a day and go, have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? Have you called this person? And so I spent a lot of time worrying about trying to push it forward and zero time enjoying the experience of it, the process of it. It didn't fix me. So it, it had to get bigger to fix me. Like I, I knew then, then I knew that if the record sold a million records or we had a second hit, then, you know, and I was playing bigger venues, then I would feel better. This speaks to a thing I've been thinking about a lot lately. Dreams are good for you. They can give your life purpose, direction, discipline. But the essential problem with dreams is that they don't make sense. When you set a big goal, you know, when, when there's like a dream you have for yourself, um, you, you imagine it happening, but it is happening to some future version of you who's like something has been fixed in, bet- in between the dreaming and the event. And ultimately, you know, I've, I've you know, achieved a few of the goals that I hope to achieve. And it's like, nah, it just happens to you. It just happens to the, the dumb version of you who was there before. It, yeah, it happens to, to, to the version of you that happened yesterday, and you don't feel any different. It's kind of incredible that Peter Stewart can write those lyrics. I got what I wanted, and now my life is just boring. And then be surprised when they end up being exactly true to his life. Self-knowledge is a process. But Dog's Eye View's album Happy Nowhere stalls after everything falls apart, has its run on the charts. They don't even make a second video from that album. But they do go back and record a second album, Daisy. So that record, there was a combination of things, right? First thing was that they weren't promoting it. Second, uh, you know, it didn't have an obvious hit on it. Third, the initial, the launch for that record was, uh, you know, we were going to go tour Southeast Asia and Australia and and New Zealand with Counting Crows. And like a week before, like that's the week before the record comes out. And a week before the tour, they were like, we're not going to do the tour. And they just canceled the tour. So we were scrambling. So it just things, things weren't working. And, and part of what was happening was also, I was a, I was a big periodic binge drinker at the time. Right. So I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't drinking all the time, but I definitely like the last show we did on the happy nowhere tour, we literally had all flown home. And then I landed in Seattle and someone, someone called me up and said, um, there's a radio show in St. Louis tonight that everyone forgot about. So you need to fly back to St. Louis and play. Shut up. Uh, I think it was Mississippi nights was the name of the club. Uh, right. And play. Facts. And so we flew back and playing some radio station show for some radio station that wasn't playing us anymore. And it was the first time, one of the only times, but I got completely blackout drunk on stage. I was so pissed off to be there and so done with it. And I, I found out the next day that we, that we did a three-song encore that I had no memory of. I'd been on stage playing in a blackout. It's a little scary, but it's also a little rock and roll until it isn't. We played the DC Chili Cook-Off, which is yet another, you know, gig that 
it sounds as bad as it is. Played at noon uh, on a hot stage in DC. I was wearing vinyl motorcycle pants. Perfect. And uh, it was, I was, I drank a bunch of tequila before noon. And during our last song, I jumped off an amp and landed, you know, like that classic Eddie Vedder thing. Like I, I grabbed the top of the stage, but I, I'm not strong enough to hang on and I can't lift myself up. So I'm literally just hanging there and slowly slipping off as I then fall to the stage <laughs> um, and just crumple. Like that big Eddie Vedder stage move, the second album, Daisy, does not quite land. Columbia Records drops him. Peter's on his own again. Matchbox 20 would take me out on a tour playing second stages on their arena tour, like on their amphitheater tour, right? So I would drive the eight-hour hump alone in a rental car and then play at two in the afternoon on the second stage and then watch my friends play. You know, the lights would go down and people would go, ah! And I'd watch them play and I'd think, I'm not, this is not working, man. I'm not growing. I'm not like, I'm not developing as a human. I'm seeing the same places over and over. I was drinking more because I was miserable. Peter gets sober and he likes it. He begins to get work as a sober companion for actors who are trying not to relapse on set. He gets to travel the world and his cover story is that he's the actor's assistant. I'm the assistant who, when the person says, hey, can we get me a cup of coffee? I go, you can get your cup of coffee. Get your own coffee. <laughs> Someone, a director turned to me one day and was like, you are the worst assistant I've ever seen. Something else is going on here. <laughs> In the meantime, Peter has recorded an album under his own name. And the independent label he signed to wants him to go off on tour the way that he had been, driving himself from town to town. But he's over that by now. So that album kind of fizzles. And it's a shame. That Peter Stewart solo album, Propeller, is really good. It's on streaming services. Go listen. He'll get two millions of a penny. And the final indignity of my interface with the music business was literally, so I, I was in a, I had a publishing deal at the time and uh, the publishing deal owed me some money and I didn't have a lot of money left. And the label had said, hey, you know what? Uh, we're going to put the record out, but we're just going to put it out digitally on our digital store. And I said, and I talked to the publishing company and they said, your contract stipulates that there has to be one physical record in one physical store or we don't pay you. So I had to get the record company to print a box of CDs and go put one at Amoeba Records so that it was in a store so that I could get paid. And I know they printed, you know, maybe... I don't know, a couple hundred CDs, and I have most of them in, in my garage. Uh, but it was just so like on the way out the door, it was like, here, here's the thing you got to do. You got to beg for them to print a CD so you can get paid. What had begun with high hopes and ambition ended with an errand. And that was that for music as a profession. Peter went to graduate school to get his master's in clinical psychology. He worked in inpatient substance abuse treatment for a few years, and now he's in private practice as a therapist in Austin, Texas. Does that fill you in the way that you were hoping music would? You know, yes, but other things do too, yeah. right? If I was looking just to this job for fulfillment, it wouldn't be enough. You know, and similarly, you know, if, if I could go way back and have 
a life with other things in it when I was making music, maybe I would have been more fulfilled by music, right? But because all chips were in on how my record was doing on any given day, there was no fulfillment. And and now, I mean, I, I really, not to be too cheesy about it, but being sober and really working on the underlying issues as a, as a man, right? As a human being and trying to figure out, like trying realizing that there's no number of times they can play the song that's gonna satisfy me. There's no, there's nothing that's gonna fill this void. I have to find contentment in other places. Um, and so to me, doing all of that work and doing the work to find, to be comfortable in my own skin and, and have contentment has allowed me to have a family, allowed me to have a relationship and allowed me to have a job that I really love doing most of the time. But when I don't love doing it, I have other things that fill fill me up, whether it's running or my family or other things. As with a lot of people who decide to get sober, Peter's decision was motivated by a moment of clarity. And honestly, Peter's moment of clarity is pretty fucking glamorous. Uh, you didn't ask this, but I'll, I'll answer it just for fun. I had a moment, like part of my, you know, moment of clarity, as it were, uh, of, of deciding to get sober or thinking I might need to get sober. I was in Las Vegas for a wedding. My, my girlfriend at the time had just dumped me. Um, and I was in Las Vegas on a boat on Lake Mead or whatever it's called, Lake, whatever the fake lake is out there, um, sitting on the roof of the boat, tripping on, on ecstasy. And, and I had this, you know, I, I was on ecstasy sitting on the boat. I felt amazing. Everything was great. And my friend who had a bunch of drugs with him was swimming from the one boat to the other boat. And I knew he was bringing more drugs. And, and as I was starting to come down from the ecstasy, I started thinking, you know what? There's not enough ecstasy in the world to keep me feeling the way I'm feeling. And there's not enough, there aren't enough women in the world or relationships in the world to keep me happy. And there's not enough money in the world. I have to fundamentally change everything and not be looking for something else to make me happy. And then, and then I had this debate with myself where I said, what if, and this is my big fear, right? What if I get happy and I no longer have any songs to write? right? What happens then? Am I willing to make that deal? And I didn't know that was going to happen, but what if I, what if I, what if it happens? Am I willing to make that deal? And I decided I was, right? I, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. If, if it's that, if I have to be, if contentment and happiness means I never write another song, I'll take it because I can't, I'm so fucking miserable that, that I can't do that. And as it turned out, I feel like I wrote my best songs after I got sober, but in a way later, as I, as I've eased out of it, you know, I've written probably three songs in the last 15 years because I don't have, there's just nothing I want to, I'm not in that pain. I'm not in that turmoil. The day after I spoke with Peter, he emailed me and I'm just going to read his email out loud. I woke up with a memory of something that I wished I'd said on the podcast. Don't know if you can add more later. Basic gist was this realization I had in, let's say, 2007 or so. I was doing a sober companion gig in Australia, and I was running on a hotel treadmill looking at the Sydney Harbor and thinking about my music career. 
I must have been listening to music. And suddenly, I had the thought that at any point in the early to mid-90s, I would have gladly traded my career and life for the critical acclaim and songwriting talent of Elliot Smith, or the voice critical acclaim and success of Jeff Buckley. Yet here I was, running with a beautiful view of Sydney, and they were both dead. It's funny to think about what we're sure we won at the time, and how lucky we turn out to be not to get it. So, I have some leads on the guys from Sudden Impact, aside from Dave Smith. I have an interview request out to Michael Bivens. I am inching closer to finding out what happened to those guys. But as that story comes together, the other bigger mystery still eludes me. Why does this story have meaning for me? Why can't I stop thinking about it? As I often do when I'm in need of guidance, I call my friend Scott Gimple and we talk about pop music. We grew up with records that stayed on the charts... Years. But I mean, like, hits that went months. Yeah. And now, is it a volume game? Is it just there's so much stuff that... It is. It's that there's so much stuff, and then it's also... You buy something, or no, actually, you don't anymore. Well, um, that's you stream something. Yeah, like it was. You know, you saved up a little bit of money and you bought the cassette or the CD, and then it was there to remind you that you had it and you could listen to it, right? Uh, and and play it in your car, and then that reminds your friend, oh, I gotta pick, I gotta get that too, and then that lasts. Like so now, even records that I that I stream when they come out and love, the next day I've completely forgotten. And there's nothing to remind me. It's just stuff to keep me swimming forward. Uh, A simple prop to occupy your time. A simple prop to occupy my time. You know, we've, we've talked about sudden impact for 18 years now. Right. Um, (laughs) And that's a thing that didn't happen that stayed in our minds. Well, but there was enough of a repeat of that, uh, of Motown Philly that initially was like, what was that? Yeah. At the end? Yeah. Like, oh, wait, that thing's coming up at the end to like, oh, I can't wait for that thing to come out at the end. Yeah. The repetition of the video engaged your imagination. And I think that seared it into our brain forever. And then in addition to that, it never being fulfilled. Yeah. The mystery of it. Never been Um, satisfied. I don't have a good memory, but I know I'll remember that moment the rest of my life from that mm-hmm. video and I will never not take a moment to think about it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even if you get closure whatever the ending is we know that that record didn't come out it didn't Right. there was no music video to follow that up there was no additional move to the point Yeah. point ended it and thus it's just a prime example of 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 ambition and potential. And I, I don't think it has a negative valence on it. Yeah. I don't look upon it as like, oh, unfulfilled potential or anything like that. I just hold it up. I mean, it, it is amazing, but I hold it up as an example of audacious creative ambition that I want to aspire to. There. Scott has said a word that really resonates with me, a word that gets right to the point of what I'm trying to say here. That word just keeps on coming to mind, audacious. Like, who wouldn't want to be audacious like that? This is my moment of clarity. Audacity. That is what this show is about. People taking bold action and seeing their lives change because of it. Yvette Nicole Brown showed up at a hotel lobby in the middle of the night and sang in her idol's face. So did Hayden. 
Todd and Alan ran up on a celebrity and asked him to sign a poster for a group that barely existed. Aaron Kane hit on someone's girlfriend. Audacity is what connects all of the people I have spoken to so far. Karen Kilgariff got up on stage to do something that scared her to death. Peter Stewart struck up a conversation about hair. Damien Fahey spent $200 at Structure. It's why I connect to the story of Sudden Impact. The things in my life that I'm proudest of, my book, Esquire, getting up at 4 a.m. to do something embarrassing that bought me a new life, those are audacious. The things I'm ashamed of, flunking out of college because I was in a gay shame spiral, are failures of audacity. And if I'm sometimes restless at this time in my life, if I sometimes find myself aimless, it's because I've forgotten my audacity. Because we've talked about them so much in this episode, let's put it in Counting Crows terms. Listen to this. Yeah! Yeah! That yeah is from the very end of Rain King, from Counting Crows' debut album, August and Everything After. That is the yeah of enthusiasm, of confidence, of optimism. That is Adam Duritz saying, I'm going to be famous and I cannot wait. That yeah is all of our best selves. But too often, we get weighed down by self-doubt, by insecurity, by fear or vanity or shame, and we end up like this. Yeah. Yeah. That is the yeah that ends Counting Crows along December. Just three years later, all of life can be summed up by those two yeahs. It's easy to be along December at this time in history, but the world needs you at a Rain King. Rain King is the one who gets out of bed when he wants to sleep. The one who goes out on a cold Chicago day to paste up flyers for his show. The one that goes clear across the country with a poster and a demo. Be Rain King. Friends, I am getting the life lesson I didn't even know I needed, and I'm getting it from Adam Duritz and Sudden Impact. Next time, I'm going to talk to a guy who joined Sudden Impact in their final form, the one that actually finally released music. And because I am going Rain King from here on out, I'm going to track down one of the most famous faces in music video history, a guy who inspired a million swoons, and I know that because about 400,000 of them came from me. Baby, baby, you do not want to miss the next episode of Waiting for Impact, a Dave Holmes passion project. This has been an Exactly Right production. Written by me, Dave Holmes. Produced by Hannah Kyle Crichton. Recorded, mixed, and sound designed by Andrew Epen. Additional engineering and assembly by Annalise Nelson. Music by Ben Wise. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, and Danielle Kramer. Follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Exactly Right. And follow me at Dave Holmes. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Binge the show ad-free on Stitcher Premium. For a free month, head to stitcherpremium.com slash impact and enter promo code IMPACT when you select a monthly plan. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 